title of the series is Disciple 1.0, just examining the original release through Matthew's eyes, looking at the first discipleship manual, if you will, that teaches us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we're working our way through that. We find ourselves at chapter 9, and we're going to be covering verses 9 through 26. And the subtitle for this message is Six Sinners, Synagogue Rulers, and Sisters. Six Sinners, Synagogue Rulers, and Sisters. And um, if you would, read with me beginning in uh, verse 9. I'm going to read the whole text so that you're familiar with it. And maybe you, you know just not familiar with what the stories are. So that as we talk about it, you're kind of over, you have the overview. But then we'll reread each piece as we comment on it. But Matthew 9... Uh, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, he saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes or flutes. He said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News about this spread throughout or through all that region. Let's pray. Father, your words are life. And Lord, in hearing them, as you speak them afresh in our souls, ignite in us the passions and desires and the actions that they were originally intended to ignite when they were penned by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, help us to see and know what you are saying so that we might do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Hugh Reed, a Canadian pastor, tells 
how a man came to be sitting before him desiring to follow Jesus. He says, Alan was a child or victim of the me generation and left home and family to, quote, find himself. And, of course, he lost himself, becoming a stranger both to himself and the world, wandering the streets of Vancouver, British Columbia, trapped in a world of drugs. One night he managed to get into a shelter. He lay in his bunk, staring up at the ceiling, listening to the groans, trying not to be overcome by the odors of those around him. He didn't know where he was or who he was. All he knew is that he wanted it all to end. He was shaken out of his thoughts when someone came in and called a name from, the other wor- from another world. Is Alan Roberts here? That had been his name once, he thought. But he hadn't heard anyone say it in so long, he wasn't sure. He hardly knew Alan Roberts anymore. They couldn't be calling him. The caller persisted. Is anyone named Alan Roberts here? No one else answered, and so Alan took a risk. I'm Alan Roberts, or used to be. Your mother's on the phone. My mother? No, no, you've made a mistake. I don't know where I am. How in the world could my mother know where I am? If you're Alan Roberts, your mother is on the phone. Unsure what to expect, he went to the desk in the hall and took the receiver. Hello, Alan? It's it's time for you to come home. Mom? I don't know where I am. I have no money, and you don't know what I'm like anymore. I can't go home. There's a Salvation Army officer who's coming to you with a plane ticket. He's going to take you to the airport to get you home. It's time for you to come home. Having no idea where he was, she had called every shelter and hostel for months until she found him. He went home to a mother who had never ceased to know him, even though he had forgotten himself. Influenced and inspired by the faith that had sustained his mother's hope and love, he began attending church services. And one day, Hugh Reed says, he came to my office seeking to be baptized. Now, as we read this account of Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth and Jesus coming by and saying, follow me. We don't know what thoughts may have run through his head that day, but I can imagine that when Jesus said, follow me, they might have included, but you don't know who I am or what I've done. I don't have anything to offer you. I can't follow you. As for Jesus, he was like this mother. As Luke's gospel puts it, he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. And the next thing you know, Matthew, in our text, is inviting everyone he knows to come to his home also. What makes it possible for people like Alan or Matthew or the tax collectors and sinners to come home? To be restored to who they are and what they were made to be. What makes it possible for any of us to be restored in to what God made us to be, the forgiveness of sins. That's what makes it possible, the forgiveness of sins. The central aim or goal of Jesus' authority that's exercised in Matthew 8 and 9. Matthew 8 and 9 
any commentator will tell you is about the authority of Jesus being displayed. But if we kind of zoom in and get our thoughts focused on what's happening, we find that the, the central aim or goal of his authority in these texts, the key reason that he exercises his authority is to forgive sins. That's the starting point. That's what begins everything else. Since Jesus can forgive sins, there's no limit to the boundaries of his authority socially or physically. Whether one is an outcast and unclean, hemorrhaging life or already dead, a lost sheep or shepherd, male or female, there's no limit to the boundaries of his authority. He can transform all of life for everyone. What does it mean for us as humans that sins are forgiven? What does it mean for our social relationships, our relationships with one another? Is it only about your personal relationship with God? Is the forgiveness of sins just a private matter between you and God? Is that all that's affected by the forgiveness of sins? Or does it have a relational impact on your horizontal relationships? The forgiveness of sins... I want to share with you today, and I believe our text tells us, is it means that the the former boundaries, the barriers, are broken down. Barriers between you and God and between you and others are broken down. The forgiveness of sins breaks all barriers and it bursts bags of wine. The forgiveness of sins breaks social barriers, relational barriers, and it means that you are welcome at Christ's table. You are welcome at Christ's table and you must welcome others. You must welcome others. We'll explore this theme in the lives of three people or people groups, groups of people, if you will, who are all in need of the physician. Sinners, synagogue rulers, and sisters. Now, if you have the outline, which have been inside your bulletin this morning, we provide those so you can take notes and follow along. You'll notice that I've got actually four headings. You've got sinners... And then, that's the longest one. And then you've got this one here, interlude. It doesn't count. It's just kind of an interlude. The the text just throws it in there, but it's relevant, and we'll see why. And then we get back to the storyline, which it all centers around that interlude. Synagogue rulers and sisters. And and so we'll uh, work our way through that. So let's begin in that first heading, sinners. Six sinners, synagogue rulers, and sisters. All of these are in need of a physician. Verse 9 again. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, don't get all caught up in what people have to do in order to be forgiven. Sometimes we, we, we are really good rule makers. We, we, we want to make sure people check all the boxes before their sins are forgiven. But you don't see that really anything going on here that allows you to do that. Jesus is walking by. Remember the story from last week, the, the immediately preceding story. There's, Jesus is speaking in this house and these people bring their friend who's a paralytic. They lay him on a mat in front of Jesus and Jesus just looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that guy didn't do anything. But lay there, (laughs) and his sins were forgiven. So we we can't make a bunch of rules, or maybe if you say this prayer and you have these words in that prayer, 
But we'll make sure that we do that right. Their sins will be forgiven. It's not about that. It's about a person, Jesus Christ. Matthew doesn't say a word. Just like that paralytic. But Jesus says, get up, take your mat and follow me. He says, follow me. It's effectively the same thing. What does he do? He gets up and follows Jesus. And from what we're told, he hasn't said a thing yet. Disciple making isn't about getting people to say certain sets of words. And then we, we saw last week, and, and, and I don't have time to explore this much today, but just to remind you, and I think it's crucial to understanding what's going on in Matthew's gospel as a whole, that even the word go, when Jesus gives the imperative go, the command go, when it comes from his mouth, it brings life. Living, or going, if you will, requires the forgiveness of sins. You can't go until your sins are forgiven. So when Jesus walks up and says, or or tells someone go, or he tells somebody follow me, or tells somebody else come, when they obey the words of Jesus, it's indicative that they have life, which is indicative that their sins have already been forgiven. Now this is last week's sermon, so we'll leave that to last week's sermon, but it's important that we have it going forward. Besides that, I don't preach two services in this, during the summer here, so I get a chance to kind of repeat one in the middle of this. When the paralytic walked, as we saw, he was not earning the forgiveness of sins. He was demonstrating that his sins were forgiven. When Matthew gets up and follows Jesus in response to his command, he isn't earning the forgiveness of sins. He's demonstrating that his sins are forgiven. And we are not forgiven by doing the commands of Jesus, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what precedes this whole larger section of what Jesus is doing. All these three chapters of commands from Jesus. We don't somehow earn the forgiveness of sins by obeying the commands of Jesus, but we do demonstrate that our sins have been forgiven when we live, when we get up and do what he says. That is living. That is life. In order for us to live, to go, to follow, to do the will of God, to truly live, our sins must be forgiven. We we, we could never live right as a way to get to Jesus. We, We have to come to Jesus, have our sins forgiven. We'll live right growing out of that. But the Pharisees have a complaint. I mean, here Jesus is, Matthew's following them. They're all eating at Matthew's house. People are coming, sinners are coming. The the, the Pharisees have a complaint. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. And his disciples, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, part of what makes this text hard for us in the 21st century is that we don't understand the connection between tax collectors and sinners or For instance, why somebody working for the IRS is a shady character automatically. Okay, That's not our worldview, our framework for thinking about this. So we just kind of read tax collectors and sinners and don't really think too much about it. We just kind of pass it on. So so what's going on here that that's the case? Tax collectors were scorned because of their dishonesty. It's one of the few occupations that almost automatically came with dishonesty and law-breaking as its kind of basis for, for accomplishing its task. It was set up that way. Another, you'll like this, Steve, was the banker. Yeah, so when he says tax collectors and sinners, it probably meant bankers too. 
We, we tend to go to what we think of as being the prominent sin, but in the New Testament, that really wouldn't be the same way they thought necessarily. Scholars indicate that it could, you know, a number of other occupations would have been included under sinners. Uh, that involved dishonesty and law-breaking. Um, the bankers were, were so because they, they charged interest to the poor. Gamblers and the equivalent version to what we today would say poker dealers uh, were occupations that involved dishonesty. So all of these were likely included and more in what's going on here when he's talking about tax collectors and sinners that are gathering. The, the, the Pharisees had an, an intense desire. They had an intense desire to obey the law of Moses. In fact, they were willing to suffer persecution in order to obey the law. They even martyred them as a sign of their intense devotion to Yahweh and their pursuit of perfection. Most people that lived that day had great esteem for the Pharisees despite their own failings. They're like, wow, these guys are really doing it. And so they get a bad rap, obviously, because of some things that, that it worked out into in the Gospels, but... You've got to understand, they were passionate about obeying the law of God. In fact, Paul, before he got, met Christ, was, because of his love for the law, he was killing Christians, handing the, you know, setting them up to be stoned, dragging them before courts. Why? All because of his love for God. It seems odd to us, but that that's the framework. So the Pharisees, when they come complaining to Jesus, they're coming out of a desire to see God's will done. Their pursuit of perfection demanded that one avoid sinners. This avoidance was often expressed as not fraternizing or associating with sinners, not going into their houses, not eating with them. It was a sort of salvation by segregation kind of thing. Based in Leviticus 10.10, which says you must distinguish between the holy and the common. So they say, hey, you, you, you only do personal stuff with the holy people and not the common, those who are not dedicated to God. Accordingly, and entering the homes of sinners or eating with them implied approval of their lives. Don't eat with sinners. You're, you're approving of their lifestyle. Business relationships, now that's understandable, but unity by, by inviting them into your home and eating with them, that is not. When a pious Jew, they thought, associated with the impure, the pious Jew's devotion to the Lord was lessened. Therefore, one must not merely be indifferent to the lives of sinners. They must avoid them. They believed that avoidance would shame sinners into change. That avoidance would shame sinners into change. Well, Jesus thought very differently about this. He thought very differently about this. Rather than uncleanness being contagious, his cleanness, apparently, is contagious. How in the world is that possible? This radically different perspective perspective was only possible because sins were being forgiven. Apparently, forgiven sin can't tarnish the forgiver. Forgiven sin can't tarnish the forgiver. The Pharisees had not factored in the forgiveness of sins, which is why despite their pursuit of perfection, our righteousness, Jesus said back in chapter 5, must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Ours must exceed theirs. We have to factor in the forgiveness of sins or we will never be able to exceed theirs. 
they could never fulfill the law because they did not embrace the forgiveness of sins, which is one of the key purposes of the law. It, it never could do it permanently. It was always looking for another day, as we'll see. But its purpose was the forgiveness of sins. And so if they're going to fulfill the law, if Jesus is going to fulfill the law, he has to forgive sins. Who needs a physician? Look at verse 12 and 13. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, a physician, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is indeed a friend of sinners, as we've sang and often hear. But he is more than a friend. He's a doctor. He's a physician. He doesn't leave us in our sickness. He transforms us by his commands into what we were made to be, whole and complete. Whole and complete. Stanley Hauerwas, in his commentary on Matthew, said, Holiness begins with the recognition that we are not well. Holiness begins with the recognition that we are not well. The Pharisees have no need of this physician because their illness is to believe that they are well. Their illness is to believe that they are well. If you have that illness this morning, I pray that your eyes are open to see your need of the Savior. Not only did the Pharisees think that they were well, they had no interest in caring for the sick. So, not only so, so, hey, we are well. We don't care that they're sick. We're not going to go get touched by them, tarnished by their uncleanness. They should have been physicians, but they merely quarantined everyone away from them. Yahweh had to come himself as the physician. Now, the Pharisees were familiar with the passage in Jeremiah that reads as follows. Listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. Well, the tax collectors and sinners were, as it were, in a land far away. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. He goes on to say, is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king no longer there? Verse 21 of Jeremiah 8, since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? So Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees is well warranted. Do you want a righteousness, a justice that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Well, for starters, inviting sinners to the Messiah's banquet is a justice, is a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They didn't welcome sinners. But we are called to welcome others because we ourselves have been welcomed. I love that text that was read earlier this morning at the mic up here. Treat immigrants, I forget the exact wording, be be kind and do, do right by them because you were immigrants in Egypt. We should be friends of, of all the outsiders. Evangelism is, is it's people meeting and coming to know people. 
announcing the forgiveness of sins through Jesus and calling them to live in the new community, also known as the church. It's people meeting and coming to know people, announcing the forgiveness of sins through Jesus to them and calling them to live in the new community, the church. Because of the forgiveness of sins, sinners are welcome and must welcome others. Sinners are welcome and must welcome others. Because of the forgiveness of sins, we are welcome at God's table and we must welcome others. That means you are welcome to Christ's table and you must actively pursue welcoming others to that table in your life. Now we get to what I've labeled an interlude, which is okay because the last two points are very short. We'll get to those. But this strange text that I've labeled tearing away patches and bursting wineskins, verse 14 and and, and following there, then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined for they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Now, on the surface, this appears to be a section about fasting, but really it's not primarily about fasting. That was the occasion. The question was asked Jesus something about fasting. So in responding, he's really bringing it back to what it the whole section is about. He's bringing it back to what he's, what's on his mind, not really per se what's on their mind. He just uses that as a vehicle to get there, if you will. He's talking about a whole new way of doing things in the kingdom of God. Apparently, the disciples of John fasted in the same way that the Pharisees did. Which probably wasn't good, by the way. <laughs> Isaiah 58 provides us with the background on what was wrong with this kind of fasting. Their their fasting was essentially about personal piety when it was supposed to be about giving food to the hungry, justice to the oppressed, and shelter to the wanderer. I'll let you read Isaiah 58 in your own time. But now Jesus said the bridegroom is here. Well, that's lifted, I think, from Isaiah 62 just a few chapters later, about four chapters later. In Isaiah 62, where it tells us that the the bridegroom would call the unwanted, the undesirable, the unfruitful by the name of, my delight is in you. My delight is in you. Jesus is coming as the bridegroom and he's welcoming everybody to the table. He's saying, my delight is in you. He's indeed their physician. He's indeed their bridegroom. In verse 15, note, Jesus says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? So he substitutes for fasting the word mourning. Okay, it's because fasting was a form of mourning. They, they were to be mourning their sin. They were mourning how, how they had sinned against God. But for the Pharisees, it had become more of an act. And you see this in Isaiah 58, even before them, this sort of act of of convincing God somehow through our hunger strike that we were deserving of his answer. We've grieved our sin enough. And God wasn't really interested in that. 
Well, that's the mourning. You can't mourn while the, the bridegroom is with you. How can our lives be consumed with mourning when the one who forgives sins, indeed the one who makes forgiveness possible, is present? You, it can't be. It's got to be filled with joy. Now he alludes to a time when they will fast because he will no longer be directly present. But listen, the new patch of forgiveness can't be attached to an old garment. They aren't compatible. The new wine of forgiveness must be poured into a new way of doing things. It's no longer salvation by separation. You pour forgiveness of sins into the old wineskin. Old wineskins, you, you can't use wine bottle because wine bottles don't break. Okay, because they're glass. But wineskins, what happens? You put, you put new wine in a new wineskin, and as the wine ferments, it expands, and that soft skin will stretch a bit with it and contain it. But an old wineskin is dry and crackly, and you put new wine in it, when it starts to expand, it just bursts out the wall. So what Jesus is using is just a simple parable to say, This new thing I'm doing, the forgiveness of sins, welcoming everybody in. You try to put it into your old structure and way of doing things, it's going to break it completely. There's an entirely new way of doing things in the kingdom of Christ. Because it begins with the forgiveness of sins. We are welcomed in and we must actively welcome others. Old boundaries are broken down. Wineskins represent boundaries. With this new wine being poured in, those old ones would break. Forgiveness of sins will break barriers to relationships which were built around staying clean by keeping away from the unclean. It expands. The forgiveness of sins expands our relationships with a pure heart and yet with hands that are willing to get dirty to help others. Jesus has been touching what is unclean and he calls us to do the same in his name. To reach out and touch the lives of those that are unclean in his name, bringing the forgiveness of sins. That leads us to the second of our headings, synagogue rulers, in verses 18 and 19. And you might say, there's only one synagogue ruler. Why did you say synagogue rulers? Well, because the one represents many others that you will run into, that I will run into, and our lives that they would run into. Read with me in verse 18. While he was saying this, there's a, there's a behold literally there that the NIV leaves out. I, I like to say, get this. In other words, what? <laughs> What's going on here? As he was saying this, get this. A, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. So... Just when you thought you had all these new boundaries figured out, he just busts it wide open again. You might get to thinking, well, okay, so the religious are now excluded, and it's only those that are the, the, the known as unclean that are welcomed in. He's like, no, 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 they're, they're welcome too. The, the, this ruler of that synagogue would be welcome at the Pharisees' table, and yet he's also welcome at Jesus' table. So it really is messing with us. As soon as you think you've got all the rules figured out, he's saying, I'm sorry, it's not, you're not going to be able to contain this. So you think, okay, I've got it figured out. We see we've got lepers, they're welcome, Gentile centurions, feverish women, demoniacs, paralytics, tax collectors and sinners. All these are welcome. And then, get this, a synagogue ruler. 
get this? Why get this? Why, 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 why look and see this? Why, why, what? Why, why? Because this is unexpected. No way. They're the old guard. But yes, even them. Synagogue rulers are welcome. This guy bows before Jesus in worship. And though he doesn't call him Lord, lest we think it's all about a formula and the words that you say, he clearly displays submission. Remember the disciple back in chapter 8, verses 18, 19, 20, 21 and 22. Chapter 8, 21 and 22. Um, the, the, the guy comes to Jesus saying, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go bury my father. I mean, he either had a dying or a dead father, one of the two. Okay? First let me go bury my father. You remember that story from just a few stories back? Contrast that with this. This ruler's insight into Jesus, his faith, if you will, which is insight into Jesus' understanding of Jesus, is a little further along, to say the least. He's, he's not saying, Jesus, I will follow you, but let me first go and bury my daughter. No, he, he understood enough about Jesus to say, I'll follow you. Hey, Jesus, come and touch my daughter and she'll live. What? What, 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 what would give somebody the idea? He understood that, that, that the cleanness in Jesus was contagious. And the ultimate uncleanness is death. Doesn't get any more unclean than dead. And yet Jesus transforms that. Jesus, I bow to you, the one who is my life. My daughter has died. Touch her. And in all her uncleanness, she will live. Synagogue rulers who need a physician, and boy, does this one need a physician, are welcome at the table of life. Religious people need physicians too. And then we get to the final one, sisters. Look with me again at verse 20. Now, I use sisters just to be clear. Because there's a story of intertwining between two women. Two women. Or in the new household of God, we'd call them sisters. Um, Plus, the alliteration works better with the S. Um, So, one is old, one is young. One is dying, the other dead. Both represent uncleanness. The dead are the epitome of unclean. The perpetual bleeding made this woman perpetually unclean. Both are female, which made them second-class citizens in that world. Slightly above your mule or your ox would have been kind of the way that they were thought of and treated culturally. Verse 20, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. He said to himself, or she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Now, blood was considered to be the life of the body, so she is hemorrhaging life. Life is flowing from her constantly. She's going to hemorrhage to death. Now, why does Matthew tell us that she's been bleeding for 12 years? It could simply highlight her desperation. That's certainly possible. That's all it's doing. It certainly does highlight her desperation, but there might be more. The number 12 is associated with Israel in Scripture. Could it be that we are to see Israel in this woman? Israel has been hemorrhaging life for a long time at the point in which this occurred. All Israel needs to do 
is believe in Jesus and reach out and touch him, and she will be healed. Here's a woman who, because she was bleeding for 12 years, has been perpetually unclean, and now she's in the household of God. Jesus says to her, take heart, daughter. Be courageous, daughter, depending on your translation. It reminds us of what Jesus said to the paralytic at the beginning, verse 2 of chapter 9. In verse 2 of chapter 9, Jesus says to the paralytic, Take heart, be courageous, son, child. Your sins are forgiven. Here, he says, be courageous, daughter, your faith has healed you. But the word for healed is the same word that's translated saved. It does mean healed, but it means more than that. It certainly, in this case, delivered from your, your disease. But I think it's used here particularly, Jesus uses it to illustrate, to connect us to the preceding her sins were forgiven when he said, your, when, when she touched the, the, the hem of his garment, the, his cloak, and she was healed. Her sins were forgiven at the same time. And therefore, she was now clean. Not only was her bleeding healed, her sins were forgiven. So we had a, hemorrh- a woman hemorrhaging life, but we also have a dead girl. Look at verse 23. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes or flutes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. Now, if you don't believe that Jesus, and therefore your Bible, ever speaks figuratively rather than literally, then you have to conclude You'd have to conclude that the only news spread about Jesus over that region was that he came, showed up, and told the truth. That, that, that he came and said, nope, she's not dead, she's asleep. And that turned out to be true. That, if, unless he's speaking figurative. Unless when he says she's not dead but asleep, that he's being figurative. I would suggest that Jesus used figurative language, and so does our Bible sometimes. That's okay. If that, uh, well, back up. When Jesus arrives, the funeral rituals were in full swing. He shows up. Flutes are playing. Crowds are gathering. Weeping is going on. Weeping, weeping. We have a word for that. It's called mourning. Jesus knows how to get a weeping crowd to laugh. Walks in the middle of the morning. Remember, We just got through being told by Jesus, oh, while the bridegroom's here, you can't mourn. It's time to rejoice. He shows up at this funeral procession thingy going on, and everybody's weeping, and what happens when he shows up? They start to laugh. Why? Well, apparently they thought what he said was kind of funny. She's not dead but asleep. As it turns out, he was telling the truth when he said that she was only sleeping because for Jesus, death is Only sleep. Jesus is gathering the household of God, which is his house. And all who come to him have their sins forgiven and are welcomed in. The forgiveness of sins breaks down barriers and bursts wineskins. Barriers that kept people away from God, like those gathered at Matthew's house. Barriers that kept people um, away from Jesus like those that would have pressured the synagogue ruler to stay away from Jesus. 
barriers that kept this woman estranged from all community, all relationship in her life. And even death itself was no longer a barrier to Jesus. You see, on a human level, death is the greatest barrier because relationships all come to an end there. But Christ, for him, death is but sleep, so those relationships don't end. We will be raised, and we will know one another afresh in the age to come. If you're here today and have not bowed in worship before Jesus Christ, he invites you today. He calls you to come and dine with him. He offers freely, saying, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to drink freely of the water of life come to drink in the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are pouring out the new wine of forgiveness still today, even now today. When the gospel is proclaimed, you pour out the new wine of forgiveness. Lord, there are those here this morning who need to drink this wine, some for the first time. Some, maybe it's been a long time, but I pray that as your spirit moves in our midst that you would help us to drink, to receive the forgiveness of our sins, which transforms our relationship with you. It breaks the barrier that was there that the hard ceiling that separated us from you, God, shatters it. And it breaks the barriers to relationships with the people of God. You welcome us at your table, Lord. Do that work in our soul, we pray.